You're listening to Pluck and Grit, a podcast about the University of Alabama over the past 50 years. I'm Mary Lee, and I'm Joey Weed. I was drawn to the challenge of being great there. So it's all these sort of competing, sometimes complementary visions that end up in a kind of messy world, you know, becoming a major university. I remember it being like probably the best time of my life. I don't have a golden book to give to anyone, but I can give you some pages out of the book. The quadrangle, what's considered holy ground, that was the center of the universe. It's those aha moments from somebody who's outside of our race, outside of our culture, to tell us this reality from their world. So that was really good time to be a student at the university. Because this is Alabama, we wanted it to be memorable and great. Every semester, students travel down the street, across the state, across the country, and even across the world to study at the University of Alabama. Yeah, Mary, I just put my home in Google Maps, and I'm approximately 64 miles from campus. And I'm 781. And you know, every student has a different journey of how they got to the university, I guess both metaphorically and physically. And in this episode, we'll focus on a specific group of students that have a distinct journey international students. We want to remind our listeners out there, this topic is so complex. International students have been coming to the University of Alabama for a long time from all over the world. Just like domestic students or students born in the United States, international students' experiences can differ based on their country of origin, their educational background, and the period of history. So for this episode, we're going to hear from students at two distinct time periods of UA's history, the late 1970s, and the early 2000s. Then we'll speak with current UA staff and international students about the experience now. And throughout this process, we'll also sprinkle in little nuggets of information about international students based on some things Mary and I found from university libraries. The university has a long history of international students, even before the 1960s, To give you a brief timeline, in 1948, the Educational Exchange Act was passed to promote a better understanding of the United States for people around the world. According to a Crimson White article, the university received a charter from the U.S. State Department four years later in 1952, so gradually more and more students began to arrive. And by 1960, the International Student Association had 65 members at the University of Alabama. The students back then were primarily from Lebanon, Syria, and China. They lived in a house off campus and would meet for dinners regularly. One of the main activities was an annual talent show in Morgan Hall. Tickets were 50 cents per student. And as the decade continued, the international community had an even bigger presence on campus. They hosted International Week and had regular coffee hours for educating U.S. students about different cultures. They later relocated into the International Rotary House, which is something still present on campus today. By the 1970s, the International Student Association had 360 students from 68 countries, The ISA even developed relationships with local Tuscaloosa groups called Tuscaloosans for International Understanding and Friends of International Students. They still continued their annual ISA talent show. But in 1975, the ISA spoke out strongly in the Crimson White, saying that they didn't have enough funding for events or advocacy within the SGA for their students. 
they noted a significant divide between domestic and international students. Students from both the Netherlands and Mexico accused domestic students and faculty as being overly nationalistic and chauvinistic towards their American ways of doing things. They also felt international students were overlooked on campus. They cited that international students made up significant portions of track, swimming, and tennis teams, while entire academic departments were also made up of international graduate students. In another instance, in the late 1970s, Iranian international students faced significant challenges when the Iranian Revolution took place. During this time, banks and post offices were shut down in Iran, so if you were an Iranian student studying in the United States, you had no way of getting money or contacting your family. After the ISA presented these issues to the Office of Student Affairs, UA's administration actually offered Iranian students special loans for their tuition and secured them housing while the revolution went on. We do hope those brief highlights helped catch you up to speed. As you can see, the International Student Association played an integral role in keeping this community together. Here's my interview with an international student who would later become heavily involved with the ISA in the 1970s and 80s. Can you say your name real quick just so we say it correctly? Suhail Massad. I am from Nazareth, Israel, originally. Uh, I've been in this country 42 plus years. I did my undergraduate in Mobile College in Mobile, Alabama. I was there from 1974 until 77. And then I attended the University of Alabama in 1977, and I graduated in 1983 with a PhD in organic chemistry. Okay, and so how did you find out about uh, the different universities in America? Uh, that's a good question. Of course, now we're going back in, 19, in the mid-70s, no internet and uh, no worldwide communication. So I really learned about Mobile College, which is called Mobile University today, uh, from one of my high school teachers who was friend of the dean of the college. And being in Mobile for undergraduate helped him connect with the University of Alabama. Yeah, I was already in the States, and when I was about to graduate, uh, one of my friends got me these five or six postcards uh, that you apply, you know, for uh, graduate, you send to graduate schools uh, to initiate the communication, and one of them was from the University of Alabama, and I filled that postcard and sent it, and uh, then we started the application process, and uh, I got accepted, and that's how I ended up in, uh, in Tuscaloosa. Before you even came to the U.S. to study at Mobile College, were you nervous? What were your feelings like before you even got to the U.S.? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, remember back then, like I say, communication, the only way we communicated way back then was mostly with, with writing letters. Uh, not instant text messaging and, and emails like today. So leaving the country way back then in 1974, my home country, was a major, major step uh, 
I was nervous. There was a lot of unknowns. I didn't knew nothing about the culture, uh, the country, how I'm going to live, the food. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of, lot of unknowns way back then. Um, uh, yeah, I was definitely nervous about coming to this country. Did you have anything that you knew about U.S. culture, watching, reading, anything to prepare? Uh not not really i mean we, we, growing up you know we watched american american movies but even i was not fluent in english so most of the movies you know i could not even understand so you know you had visions you know is it going to be like these you know you see these western movies is it going to be some areas going to be like like that you know uh, what's going to be like so you had some ideas what what the country looked like from postcards, from pictures, and newspapers, and so forth. Uh, but you're not you're not really sure uh, about the soft image, the people, the culture, the acceptance uh, by the people, and so forth. Uh, that was that was unknown. And what was your experience like as a PhD student at the University of Alabama for those six years? Uh, well, I, I had a great time at the University of Alabama. Um, I mean, it was a great school, great environment. Uh, e- even as an international student, I never felt like I was an international student uh, by other American students. It was a very friendly environment. It was a really great experience. But I'll, I'll tell you what, the people in Alabama were amazing and are still amazing. Uh, they were very hospitable. Um, I made some very, very close friends uh, that we are still close today. Uh, just, I cannot brag enough about uh, American people. And after spending some time at the university, Sahel found a home. Well, I, you know, I joined the uh, the university, and uh, on Fraternity Road there was a house called the Rotary International Student Center. Okay, well, I'll, I I lived there. And uh, I became aware of the International Student Association. Uh, one of the, pres- the previous presidents uh, became a friend of mine, and um, I got involved uh, with uh, with the organization. And then I was asked if I would serve as a president, and I thought, you know what, why not? So uh, uh, I did. Uh, I was elected to serve as a president for one year. So uh, that was also a great experience for me. And so. What was ISA like? We, we were limited uh, with what we could do, but we we had um, activities. One thing we did, at least I was involved with when I was a president, uh, at the beginning of the year, when during the registration process, when international students were actually flying into Tuscaloosa, uh, I worked very closely with the International Student Affairs Office, um, and basically, we uh, helped bring uh, students from the airport to the campus. Matter of fact, we rented the uh, if the office rented a van that you know we helped transport the uh, the students from uh, receiving them at, at the airport, bring them to campus, help them with home uh, housing arrangements either on campus or apartment renting and so forth. Uh, you know, way back then, you did not do any of that until you got on board or, or, you know, because like there was no Internet. So this service we did for many of the incoming students in the beginning of the year. Uh, we had a 
several annual parties uh, at the Rotary Clubhouse for international students. We also had an annual talent show for the international students, but again, that was open to the public and was attended by many Americans from even on campus and outside campus, where we also, uh, the students, international students prepared international foods and brought it to the talent show. Then we had really a talent show by different uh, talented students from different countries. And after the show, we had basically international feast where people try different food from different countries and so forth. I don't know if that is still going on, but we that was an annual event when I was at the University of Alabama. So how did international students contact home while they were studying? Uh, mainly letters, um, because I, because calling home way back then, of course, right now, you know, uh, anywhere in the U.S. you call for free, right? Uh, even you can call some countries, other countries for free. Way back then, long distance from city to city, you had to pay money. For example, if, if you called from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham, that was a long distance, and you would get charged by... Uh, by the minute, also calling Israel for me at the time and other countries was very, very expensive. Uh, like to give you an example, that the first minute was like two dollars and forty cents, and every additional minute was like dollar sixty. And at the time, minimum wage was below two dollars. So you can imagine how expensive that was. To so I used to call home once personally or around Christmas time, but the rest of the time we were you know, sending letters back and forth. Yeah. Um, did you ever fly home at any point in your studies? Or did your family ever come visit? Uh, I went, okay, I started at the university in 1977. Uh, in 1980, I went back home for the first time since I came to this country. Uh, yeah, I went back to visit. And then for my graduation in 1983, uh, my mom came to visit and attend the uh, ceremony. Communication obviously seems like a, a big obstacle. What were some other big struggles that international students faced while they were on campus? Well, I'll tell you one. There was, um, is the Crimson White still the uh, campus newspaper? That's correct, yes. Okay. When I was president, um, somebody wrote an article um, about the international students' instructors. You know, for example, I had a teaching assistant. I was a teaching assistant, okay? And uh, many other graduate students from different countries also had teaching assistants, which means they taught classes, they taught laboratories, and, and so forth. And, you know, some students were difficult, more difficult to understand than others. Somebody wrote a letter or article in the Crimson White about the difficulty American students are having, you know, attending classes taught by international students. And, of course, there were some valid points, obviously, but... um, that was perceived as really a negative uh, attack on international students. And I worked with the director of the uh, student student affairs office, and we brought the rebattle and went back and forth, and it comes to white and so forth. So uh, there were some issues. I mean, life wasn't uh, a piece of cake, but in general, 
Um, you know, internationals were treated very fairly, very friendly. Uh, there were no um, personal attacks of any uh, any form, what have you. So, but again, that's just one guy wrote an article that created some some fire. But before long, that was hushed out, and you know, life went back to normal. Now, one thing that came up in our research of international students is this internal divide between students from different countries. For instance, Latin American students would only stick together or Chinese students would only talk to each other. These are mostly due based on their shared experiences or common language. Here's what Sahail said about that. Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, just like the United States, you know, as a country, we are one united, but then we have different states and the residents of, the residents of each state kind of stick together. It was the same thing as, as an organization. Yeah, we were, uh, we felt like we belonged to something, uh, but when it came down to it, the people from each country, they they had their own uh, subgroups. For example, my, both my friends were from uh, countries from the re- from the Middle East, Middle Eastern region, you know. So we spoke the same language, we ate the same food, and we felt closer together. Uh, but again, we belong to the ISA or the International Student Association. So at the gathering and so forth, we felt like we belong to something. What what are what are some of your favorite memories about the University of Alabama? It doesn't have to be about the International Student Association. Just when you think back on your your six years here, what do you remember most fondly? Of course, you never forget the uh, the, the football games on campus. Uh, that was uh, it wasn't as big as today, obviously, but uh, today, of course, you have the tailgating on the quad. Way back then, we didn't have that on the quad at all. So, uh, but Bear Bryant was the head coach way back then, so that was really good time. Uh, to be a student at the university. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, as, as a graduate student, you know, you spend all your time worrying about schools and studying and so forth. The chemistry department used to be uh, in Lloyd Hall, right on the square. So, and I basically almost lived there. I mean, I spent day and night in, in, in the laboratory uh, down there. So that was my home. I, I do have one more question. So after you... Um after you graduated with your PhD, um, what were your plans? Did you know where you were going to go? Did you think you were going to go back home or stay in the U.S.? What? No, actually, I made a decision uh, way back then that I, I wanted to stay in this country, and I think that's the well, the best decision I made was to come to this country. Originally, the plan to come get my undergraduate degree and go back home. Uh, well. When I graduated from Mobile College, I decided to do graduate work. So, and by then I started to get the idea that maybe this will be my second home. Um, and of course, I graduated. I wanted to find a job. The economy was not in great shape way back then. Uh, I managed to get a teaching position. So, you know, I started to teach college. Uh, Obviously, I enjoyed living in this country. Like I said, I have made so many friends, American friends, that is. Uh, and then one summer, I went back home for a visit while I was teaching. I met this girl, you know, fell in love. We got married. She came back home. And, you know, we just decided, you know what, this is 
this can be our home. So uh, we have four kids who live here, and uh, we are very happy to call this country our permanent home now. Dr. Sahail Massad is currently a vice president of a consumer packaged goods company. We hope you enjoyed that story. When we come back, Mary will tell you the story of two domestic students and their unique roles within the international student community in the early 2000s. So you just heard from an ISA president in the 1970s. So now we'll move ahead a few decades to the early 2000s. Though we've talked mainly about students traveling thousands of miles, these stories actually focus on students who grew up just a few miles from campus. My name is Rashmi Sharif. I attended the University of Alabama from 2000 to 2004, and I double majored in management and Spanish. I am from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Um, my dad is a professor at the University of Alabama, so I was a faculty brat growing up. Um, I grew up in the halls of my dad's building, playing on his computer, um, using paint on his computer. Um, so those are kind of like just early memories of the university that I have. And she didn't always want to go here. Um, growing up in that environment, I actually initially didn't want to go to the university um, because it was just a part of home and a part of my identity and I wanted to kind of expand and go further away but um, my dad was like well um, you get a discount if you go to the university so I was like I know and he's like so I think you should go and I was like no I don't want to go so I applied these other places got in but didn't get the scholarship money that I was hoping for and ultimately, my father and I, we struck a deal that if I went to the University of Alabama, he would support me in my study abroad endeavors. But once Rashmi attended the university, she found herself deeply involved with campus. And I ended up going to the university and absolutely loved it because going to the University of Alabama, even when you're from Tuscaloosa, is a completely different experience. So I loved all things international. Um, so I was involved in Model United Nations, so I got to go on several conferences, one in Montreal, I remember, I have so many fond memories, and, um, I got involved with the International Student Association because I was so fascinated by people from different countries, um, and I was just like, this is, this is such a cool experience, it's like I'm getting a study abroad experience on campus. I got involved with the English Language Institute. I was a conversation partner. So I met a lot of international students that way, helping them with their English. Um, it was really cool. That was an incredible experience. All these memories are like coming back to me right now. It's so awesome. Um, and so, yeah, and as a result of those experiences, I found myself getting super involved with international students and becoming very passionate about international student causes. Um, so that's how I kind of landed with the ISA. And from there, she began to understand international students and their experiences. First off, how did they find out about the University of Alabama? So from what I remember, it usually was because a friend attended. So it was, so somebody attended and then, you know, a friend of a friend, oh, I went to Alabama. So there was always some sort of friend connection or maybe some sort of family connection. Um, so I think that's usually how people ended up 
at the University of Alabama. Then, once the students arrived, they still experienced a common struggle. It's the whole, like, you know, they only hang out with other international students, usually people from their own country. Um, they wanted American domestic friends badly, but it, there seemed to be such a disconnect. It seemed like there was really no interest from the domestic students to really hang out with international students. And the ones that did hang out with them were kind of like, it was the same students over and over again. And as a part of my involvement with the ISA, we tried coming up with things to, to like alleviate that. But while international students couldn't always get a deep U.S. understanding, they did find community with other international students and a handful of domestic students like Rashmi. We had a really good time. Um, you know, the, the cool thing about some of the international students, or a lot of them rather, was in addition to hanging out with people from their own country, they hung out with other international students. And as an American student that was able to kind of become a part of that circle, you know, we would get together every weekend and cook at Rose Hall. I think they they tore it down. Not yeah. Was it not Rose? Which Rose one Towers. was Rose Towers? Yeah. They tore that down, but that was like the place. And they were, and you know, maybe it wasn't the best idea from a housing perspective, but they were all housed there. So that tower was like so international and we would like go and cook and have fun. Um, one of the initiatives that the International Student Association did was we would host rotary house parties. So there was a rotary house on campus and students from all over the world, they were affiliated with the rotary organization and somehow, um, and they stayed there. And so we got involved with that house and we would host parties and those parties would actually attract a lot of American students. And so there was, there was a good opportunity for all of us to just have a really good time. And beyond informal gatherings at the Rotary House, the ISA stayed busy. We had um, date auctions to raise money. I don't know how appropriate those would be in today's age. I don't know, but that was something that was a lot of fun. Um, we would volunteer um, at organizations. We would go to Rotary meetings. Luckily, with the help of technology, Rashmi is still able to keep in contact with the students she met in undergrad. Facebook has been awesome in terms of keeping in touch with all those friends that, that moved away um, after they graduated. And I also moved away, so that has been awesome. Um, one of my friends from Japan, um, I remember that she was like in Atlanta visiting, and so she made a point with her husband and child to come down to Tuscaloosa and visit me, which was just so cool. And then um, it's just cool to know that if I were to go to a different country and if I just so happen to have a friend there, then I can actually go and visit them and perhaps even stay with them. It's just incredible the kind of network I have as a result of my experience as an undergrad. Now, although there was a fun community of international students, the ISA was actually led by domestic students during this brief period. So I was a part of a unique time in ISA history where there was a lot of American involvement in the ISA. I decided to run for president of the ISA and I ended up getting elected and it was a really cool experience for me. Um, so, and then I think the and then I think what happens with student organizations is you kind of just pull your friends in and then like your friends start becoming the leadership and me being an American student, a lot of my friends 
were American. So it, for a period of time, a lot of the leadership was American. And then I want to say Divya was like, okay, guys, this is kind of getting on, out of hand. Like, this is the International Student Association. We need to put it back into the hands of the international students. And so I think she was the one that kind of, you know, like steered the ship back onto to course. Um, and international student students started regaining leadership positions within the organization. And that brings us to a similar student, just a few years younger than Rashmi. She worked during this time to build bridges across UA's on-campus communities. My name is Divya Patel, and I attended um, University of Alabama in 2002 to 2006. I studied, uh, my undergraduate degree was in accounting, and then I did a minor in computer science. I was born in the United States, and I went to school, I went to high school at the Alabama School of Math and Science, and then I ended up um, deciding to go to Alabama for my undergraduate degree. I wasn't exposed to the IFA until my sophomore year of college, and um, my first interaction with IFA was um, I had a friend who was also Indian that somehow we connected and um, we went to one of their parties. They used to have these, what they call ISA parties. And they're basically, sometimes they were at bars, sometimes they're at people's houses, but it was just a way to just dance or um, talk and conversate. Um, it was just a lot of fun. So basically I just was a member and then, um, and then I became um, vice president and then um, and then I later became president. Now, back then, ISA was really the only main international student organization on campus. And that was where some domestic students found community as well. So when I was in school, ISA, there was no other like South Asian societies or anything like that. It was just ISA. So it was if you were international or if you were you know, born here and you were Indian or you know, whatever you were, you could be a part of ISA. That was it, you know? And I think that that made it where a lot of domestic and international students who are, come from an international background, you know, got to interact with each other. In addition to parties hosted by the ISA, there was another big event. It might sound similar to the ISA talent shows we've already discussed. One of our biggest events was the Flava Fest. Um, basically, it would just bring all different types of cultures together um, through dance or poetry or anything that people wanted to share, as well as foods from across the world. So it's basically a fest of flavors. So um, that was one of our biggest events and that I got involved with. And while working on that, Divya noticed a big divide between domestic and international students. My big thing when I was there was I, I noticed that there was a huge, there was a huge divide between like the international students hung out with the international students. It wasn't like the domestic students, I guess, if you want to call them, um, interacting with them. So to me, that was kind of strange just because, you know, I was domestic, but I I, I didn't see, like, I didn't see that there's two sections of people, but that's what it seemed like when I was there, and I thought that was strange. So when I was there, I wanted to, to be involved so that way I could integrate the domestic students and the international students, so to speak, because I just thought that 
them coming from abroad, it's no use of them hanging out with each other. They're going to get more exposure to the cultures and, you know, the whole aspect of coming to America, you know, to meet different types of peoples and that kind of thing. That was my main focus. And so I was, you know, I contacted, I was also in a sorority. So I contacted all the sororities, all the fraternities. I contacted all these different organizations and I begged them to come to Flavor Fest. I was like, you know, this is a good stepping stone for maybe these people to maybe try to come to some of our ISA parties, some of our more smaller intimate events. And so it ended up being a huge success. And there was people from all over there, which was great. Although the event was deemed a success, she now recognizes that building bridges between cultures takes more than an evening. The only regret that I have is that You know, maybe I just didn't transition the next people the right way to introduce them to the people on in the other organizations that I was involved with to continue that overlapping to where now it would be it wouldn't be the same story. Nevertheless, her involvement on campus allowed her to engage with diversity and she was able to learn from those experiences. I don't know. I remember a lot. I remember it being like probably the best time of my life. Um, I felt like I grew in so many different ways by being a part of different types of organizations on campus. Um, you know, I was involved with ISA, but like I said, I was also in a sorority. So I was in like all these like different groups that don't normally interact with each other. And I, I guess in my mind, I was thinking, why aren't they, you know, and that it would be, it, it made sense to me that there should be overlap everywhere on the university. That's how you grow. That's how you become the best person you want to be, you know, whatever you decide in your career. So we asked Rashmi the same thing. Why is interacting with international communities so important? Um, It helped me with my Spanish quite a bit and it helped them with their English. Um, But yeah, I think it's just really important to realize there are other people in this world that live in a completely different way, that think in a different way, but at the same time, we're all a part of this human experience and we have similar emotions and feelings when it comes to heartbreak. That was something that we dealt with a lot as undergraduates and when it comes when it comes to family and things like that. So it was just really incredible for me to like just connect in that way with people that are from a different country. And for Rashmi, her experiences with both international students and study abroad gave her confidence to change the narrative about Americans. And, and, and I think my identity as an American really became more solid. Um, you know, when, during my travels abroad, people would always ask me, oh, where are you from? Where are you from? And I'd say the United States and be like, no, really, where are you from? And I felt like it was my responsibility to really change that narrative as to who an American is and what an American looks like. So I would never talk about my just family background or anything like that because at the end of the day, I was born and raised in North America. I was raised in Alabama and I don't, I want people to understand that there's no contradiction there between who I am as an American and what the stereotypical book of who an American is. Um, So I think it's my responsibility to change that narrative. In case you were wondering, both Divya and Rashmi told us that most of the international students used calling cards to contact their families back home. 
There was an informal ride-sharing initiative set up back then, but it was mainly to take international students to and from the airport. And when we come back, Joey and I will delve into what campus is like now for many international students. All right, we're back. Now we're going to delve into the international student experience on campus in 2016 and 2017. According to public reports from Capstone International Services, over 1,300 international students enrolled at the University of Alabama in the fall 2016 semester. That's double the number when Divya and Rashmi were students 12 years ago. It's noted that these international students brought $49 million into the local Tuscaloosa economy through things like tuition, books, and living expenses. In fact, the over 1 million international students enrolled in the United States contribute $32.8 billion into the U.S. economy. You can go to is.ua.edu for more enrollment data. Now we can talk about numbers all we want. But since this is a podcast, let's hear from people around campus. We have a handful of perspectives we're going to weave together about certain topics. We also want to note that all of these interviews took place at the end of 2016, before President Trump took office. So without further ado, buckle up for a round of introductions. We talked to a roundtable of three UA staff who work closely with international students on campus. My name is Caitlin Kelly, and I'm the Associate Director for International Admissions and Recruiting in Undergraduate Admissions. Hi, my name is Jeff Capilli, and I'm the Recruitment Admissions Coordinator for the English Language Institute at the University of Alabama. And I'm Charter Morris. I'm the Director of International Services here at the University of Alabama. These three will provide a big-picture perspective of international students at UA. Throughout the interview, you'll also hear from two students, a freshman from India. My uh, my name is Rajiv Kumar Sharma. Uh, I'm from India, and uh, I'm here in Alabama studying uh, chemical engineering. And a graduate student from Iran. Uh, My name is Jamila Beg Mohammadi. I'm a PhD student in physics and astronomy uh, department, Um, and uh, I'm right now vice president of the International Student Association. I'm from Iran. We started off wanting to know what draws international students to a large public university in the United States. I mean, a lot of it comes down to what is going on in their home countries, both economically, politically, um, those types of things. We've seen this kind of big boom with China recently, and that a lot has to do with their economy. Um, It also has to do with places for them in their home university systems. So as numbers get tight in their home universities, they may be looking... um, at the United States. Mm-hmm. The United States is is a number one, um, I guess, receiving country of international students around the world. And so students, we know that we're also in competition for students who may want to go to the UK or may want to go to Australia. So, I mean, it, it is really a global picture that we're looking at. Primarily, we have, and it, it's a little different for, for the BELI English Language Institute, where uh, primarily, our students are interested in uh, a public university because they typically offer much more uh, resources and services than any other institution would, especially for the English Language Institute, because you have English Language Institutes or intensive English programs, IEPs, where they're, uh, they could be small, they could be 
associated with another school somehow. But when they come to this university, uh, they are afforded all of the resources and services that uh, a regular student would. So that's that's the allure of that institution, a public uh, university. And I think that, um, you know, U.S. higher education, it, it, it has always been seen as, as one of the best around the world. The amount of research, especially being done at a large public institution like the University of Alabama, puts us in a caliber of institutions that can, can't be matched by many other countries in the world. So it really is about the quality of education, especially at the graduate level. At the undergraduate level, there's that that traditional residential university experience. Um, but our students overseas are probably more academically driven than I see the typical U.S. freshman coming in as. Um, so the things that they're very much interested in are those opportunities to research, how they're going to build themselves um, academically and so forth. Um, of course, then they benefit from our campus, from what's going on, our social scene, our football, those types of things. Um, but I would say that for a student choosing a university internationally, those things come secondary. Yeah. And here are the students' experiences with finding schools. Um, I have I had always wanted to come to America, and uh, it, it was it was sort of a it was dormant inside me, I believe, for for quite a while. But uh, once I was in my Junior of junior year of high school, I had this professor from uh, Millersville University to University in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He had come to our college on a Fulbright fellowship, and it it, it really stuck me that uh, maybe I had a shot at coming to America and like studying here. I guess I mean I've heard I'd heard all about like the big colleges like MIT, Caltech, Stanford, and all these, and like those obviously have does do have a certain role in like kind of attracting because these are the best institutions. Obviously like institution in gen- institutions in general in America uh, tend to be very sort of you know, recognized, most of them at least. And uh, so uh, I approached this professor, I sent him an email that I I wanted to pursue my higher education in America and I was willing to work for it. He was very kind, uh, he helped me out a lot with uh, what the procedure not exactly the procedure, but the exams that I needed to give and how life as an undergrad student in America kind of looks like. I I think one reason was uh, like the cool um, uh, research that was going on. Uh, specifically, like I was from condensed matter background and I wanted to stick with the same major. And a constant question that we've asked throughout this episode, how do international students find out about UA? Uh, it varies from region to region because, uh, let's say, for instance, in Brazil, Brazil, like in South America, Brazil, they rely heavily on Facebook. Um, you know, some other countries may have, let's say, Weibo uh, in China, for example. Um, there's all these different types of social media platforms that are region-specific. And in fact, for the English Language Institute, because we offer very high-quality programs uh, and just a great atmosphere to learn, the word of mouth is so, so powerful. Uh, Of course, social media helps and and all the other efforts for that uh, one-on-one contact. And, I mean, clearly we want to spread our message, and that's part of our goal of going out and recruiting and so forth, but we know that a lot of the message is spread not by us, mm-hmm. whether to our advantage or to our disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, that alumni networks absolutely are, are out there on social media, that mothers are out there on social media, um, and saying different things about the university. I had a really interesting case this past year 
where a student, great kid, came in with um, our presidential scholarship, which is offers full tuition. He said he had learned the whole thing and he'd learned what scholarship he wanted through College Confidential. I don't recommend that to students, but he had done his research and he had read all the mom posts and had figured it out. A lot of my social media, I guess, activity and so forth isn't directly to students and maybe is a lot to their counselors, to people that may be influencing their decisions um, on the high school side. Because I think that those are our, that that's our network that we really need to help them understand what University of Alabama is so that they can better spread the word and be like, oh, I know a student that really fits. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. Most students, when they're looking at a college abroad, whether it's a, an American student looking to go abroad or an international student looking to come to America, they may know by name two, three institutions max. And the University of Alabama is not going to be one of those <laughs> institutions that they know that's on the tip of their tongue. It's going to be Harvard. It's going to be Princeton. It's going to be Yale, massive private institutions, uh, part of the Ivy League that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And and they have great reputations, of course, but those aren't the only three institutions in all of the United States. And so when a kid goes to a counselor, they say, I want to go study in America. It's the counselor's job to know about the other institutions. And so if we can connect with them and let them know about all these great opportunities, these scholarship opportunities that they may not know about. Uh, it's going to go a long way to, you know, helping that student get directed towards us. Rajib also benefited from technology in finding out about the University of Alabama. Well, uh, I applied to quite a few universities and uh, my only source was like the internet. I, I couldn't possibly come here to the universities, firstly because of uh, it, it, it can be very expensive to tour the states, and secondly, um, because of visa regulations and things like that. If you're a student, you get a visa pretty easily, or like relatively easily. But if you come as a tourist, it can get messy sometimes. But anyways, um, Google was sort of my savior in this regard. Uh, I used internet for literally every purpose. Like if I wanted to check, like see the university, I just Google images or like literally like stalk the university in a colloquial sense, like look up the YouTube videos, how the campus looks like and everything. And uh, I use websites to see how they were ranked, how the programs were, how was the faculty and things like that. So yeah, University of Alabama, I found out about it quite late because uh, I desperately needed scholarships to study in America. Like there's no other way. They come from a very um, middle income family in Indian standards. So uh, I obviously needed a scholarship. Uh, I, I applied to quite a few universities, but the scholarships that that they were offering weren't like these were my first choice universities, and the, the scholarship that they were offering were, wasn't enough. So, luckily, I found this woman on Reddit, and she told me about the University of Alabama. And so, just to clarify, you found out about the University of Alabama on Reddit. On Reddit, initially, I heard heard about it on Reddit. This woman advised me to look up, look it up, and uh, the rest of it was Google, the internet. Then we dug deeper into what attracts international students to UA out of all the other universities in the country. I think something that serves us well is ranking. Um, that as a public institution, we do very well within our ranks. And a lot of uh, students overseas, as we mentioned before, that that is what drives their admissions. And they're very interested in getting into the best school that they can, um, especially for um, if we have some scholarships available, those types of things as well. And so, but really our ranking takes us a long way so i think also it's um sometimes you can say that family ties there Mm -hmm. could be some type of family ties where 
you know, student has family in this particular area, and the family uh, trusts and knows that University of Alabama is a great institution. So, and um, students who who are into competitive sports are in into that um, culture, that student culture, that um, typical American university experience. You can definitely find that here. If not, it. it that experience is one of the best experiences here at the University of Alabama, and we do offer that. Yeah, of course, our, our scholarships that we had mentioned before, we have very, very, very competitive uh, scholarships that that can attract the best and the brightest and, and do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to be underestimated because not all institutions, public or private, offer scholarships. They may have one or two scholarships, uh, or they may be restricted um, to domestic students only or, or residents of certain states, whereas we have non-resident scholarships that are open to not just out-of-state students, but to international students as long as they meet the, the criteria for the, for the scholarship. And, and that's a big deal. Uh, it's a really big deal. Something else that comes into play is location, and some of that deals with climate, mm-hmm. um, that we are a moderate to warm climate, which matches where a lot of students are coming from. Mm-hmm. If you look at where we're recruiting most of the time, it is warmer climates, and mm-hmm. so... Um, it helps a lot to be able to say, no, you're going to be okay. Like, this is going to be com- comfortable for you. Yeah. Here's what attracted Rajib and Jamila to Alabama. When I looked at it, I really liked it because, first of all, the, the weather in the southern part of this kind of America, like the weather here in Alabama is quite similar to where I come from. And I, I really liked the campus. It was big. It was green. And this is very important to me. A lot of people, I think, don't care about it. But green spaces is very important to me. I, I love being in touch with nature, like huge trees and like um, all sorts of green spaces around. And uh, so that was a big plus for me. The university looked really good also. Like it, it, it was very beautiful. So The way that I did it, I think it was pretty simple and straightforward. I just went to US News website and I started looking at uh, like physics programs and what... Uh, specifically each university has and I just started from top one uh, top 10 universities and went down uh, and uh, I applied I think for five or six universities within US uh, I got admission from two and then finally uh, decided to come to uh, Alabama so that was the way that I was looking for I was just looking at the programs and uh, what research is going on and once a student decides to attend college in the U.S., they begin a complicated process of paperwork to get here. Before they even get to campus, that I see is one of the major hurdles, is that international students must declare that they have enough mon- enough funding for their education for the first year. And I mean, we see a drastic drop-off point between those who are clearly admissible and bright kids and those who are able to fund their education. And so I'm, before they even talk about getting to campus, I think it's that's the biggest hurdle that we see. And that's a huge one, and, and mm-hmm. you like we see we see the data feed, so we knew, know how many people are admitted. But then the number that we're actually producing visa documents for is a much smaller percentage, and uh, and that is a, that's a heavy burden. I mean, you know, uh, we we want to recruit, and I think we've always said this: a, a diverse uh, population of students, not all from the same countries, not all from the so, same socioeconomic status. But the fact remains that they still have to be able to afford their their uh, cost of living. Even mm-hmm. if they get a full scholarship, they've got to be able to h- afford housing and meals. And Tuscaloosa is not a 
even though it's cheaper than most, it's still not a cheap town to live in. Yeah. And, um, and that, that makes it a, a tough thing. I think another hurdle which adds to that is actually getting the visa. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in many cases, students uh, in particular countries may experience uh, difficulties in getting visas for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, that's... Well, there, there is a, a bluntly, there's yeah. a presumption that certain countries, because it's a an impoverished country, a third world country, that there's an expectation that the student will potentially uh, attempt to immigrate to the U.S. legally, possibly. But the thing is, they're applying for what's called a non-immigrant visa, mm-hmm. and the uh, the intent has to be proven that ultimately you will go home. So that kind of uh, obstacle is something that's sometimes insurmountable. Uh, even if even if they have full scholarships or at the graduate level assistantships to pay for everything and can prove you know vehemently that their intention is to come home and better their country, uh, they may just outright be denied. And we see this a lot with you know South American countries, with uh, African countries, with some Southeast Asian countries and, and South Asian countries, uh, whereas, you know, for the most part, our European students don't have this uh, issue because they're never questioned about their intent to go home because they come from uh, Western developed countries. And so, um, bluntly speaking, that's been an, uh, a real issue uh, across the board with international education. Not just the University of Alabama, all universities have this, this headache of attracting great, well-qualified students who may even get over the hurdle of funding, but don't get through the hurdle of the visa interview. So I graduated and I had a gap year, which I had to take because there was no way I was completing the entire application process in an academic year because I was literally, you can imagine, because I didn't even tour college. I had never come to America before, so it was everything on the internet, right? It wasn't easy, to say the least. And uh, So how long did the application process take? Oh, it, it took me a lot of a while. Uh, just to... Uh, it took me like what eight months and just to give you a sense of idea of how drawn out that can be so my mark sheets were in Indian terms right my report cards as Americans would say it and uh, for the university to accept them I had to send them physically via mail via physical mail to a evaluating company here in Chicago pay them for it pay, I paid like $300 for, for the evaluation then they send, send it back to me via physical mail back in India, and I had to send, send the evaluated mark sheet back to Alabama via physical mail. And it was like just one part of the process. And there were lots of things like that. And uh, it was quite expensive as well. And also I had to apply to quite a few universities because like, if things didn't work out. I think applying was quite stra- straightforward, so I uh, didn't have a problem with applying. But um, for me as an Iranian student, uh, one issue was the visa issue because of the like the political um, uh, issues between the countries. Uh, and then uh, which made it a little hard because I needed to travel to a different country to apply for a visa and I needed to do this twice. So it was a little expensive and also time consuming because it, it, I mean, the whole process took about uh, like four or five months. Uh, um, but other than that, I think applying as itself was, was mm, straightforward. Yeah. Even after the paperwork is approved, the anticipation and preparation for U.S. culture is another important step. So I had been living with my mother for like about three years now, three or four years alone. 
me and my mother in this house. And uh, obviously, I was very close to her. And uh, that was one of the, like, I was very worried about how I'd deal with life without my mother behind me. Not that she would, like, handhold me and everything that I did, but, like, just her presence was a huge motivating factor for me. And, like, to imagine living in a different country so far away from home. This experience is kind of different from other people who live away from the parents, American, otherwise, because their parents can visit them whenever they want. They're, or visit them, or at least they can, if the situation is dire, or if, the, if their son daughter needs to see them desperately. But for my mother, that is not possible because she does not have a visa yet. So even if she wanted to, she couldn't. So that is something that I, have, that I know and have to live with for quite some time. What were you most excited about before you came to the U.S.? Um, the lifestyle. Really, like, to better prepare myself uh, to assimilate, like, I actively studied American literature and, like, history and the American culture in general, like, and not, I, I already had an affinity for Ameri the, the entire American culture of, like, the go-getter attitude or, like, you can do it, like, the American dream. But still, it was like, I'm going to experience a completely new uh, atmosphere. I'm going to see people that I've, I have never seen. And uh, that was one of the things that I was a little worried about because I was worried that this will maybe distract me from what I'm really going to do because I was coming mostly for research. After a long college search, months of paperwork, and some tough goodbyes, students touch down in America. The culture shock is filled with all sorts of emotions. I think, at least initially, it's... Um there is always a culture shock um, or an acculturation uh, process that takes place when anyone moves to any new location. location. So um, what's funny is the culture shock that a student from California experiences coming to the, to the University of Alabama uh, is not dissimilar to the culture shock that someone coming from China to the U.S. would experience. Uh, you know, anytime you move to a new place, you've got to establish new ties. You've got to establish uh, new connections and roots and everything else. So that that's a tough one. A professor had uh, got into the airport to pick me up, and he, I was in awe the first moment I landed in Birmingham because I had made it. Or rather, I should say the first moment I touched down on Houston because I was on American soil, and that was huge for me. It was like dream achieved for me. It's it's a feeling that that is indescribable. But um, he picked me up and I stayed I stayed the night at his place and uh, he dropped me off at the university. We did some we did some shopping and stuff. And uh, uh, I I had landed in on the eighth and classes started from seventeenth, so we had a, quite a bit of time before classes started. And we had just gotten back from shopping. I was sitting in the room and like I I was jet lagged, so I slept a little. And when I woke up that evening, then the reality kind of sunk in that. I'm alone now. There's no one there beside me. Or like, oh, this is it. Sort of, this is where I'll be staying for a for a majority of my life. And that. the very next day, like, I got really homesick and I couldn't call, like, hold myself together. And I just called my parents and like, wept and they were, they were very emotional as well. It was very special. It's like uh, when you start living in a different country, it's like uh, being born again somehow. Uh, I was lucky that I had very good friends uh, to help me uh, during the first days. Uh, I was like completely like uh, uh, leaving your country, leaving your family, friends and everything that you have had uh, like in a few days and then uh, you start completely new life here. Uh, 
One thing that was quite interesting, it was not, not maybe shocking, but interesting was that uh, when, uh, because I was from a big country, a big uh, like uh, city, uh, and uh, when I came here, I was a little surprised with the population and how small the city is and why nobody is around because I came like 22nd of December, which was the time that I think most of the students were gone for vacation. So I was a little surprised because of that. So I was thinking, oh, is it going to be like this for the whole year? But it was not. So from an administrator's perspective, this arrival process must cover a variety of student concerns. Our office, we do a lot of programming. We start off with an orientation uh, where we try to do two things that are somewhat disparate, but we have to do it, and we only have our few hours with our students. Most mm -hmm. undergraduate and graduate students, after they check in with us, I mean, if, if they weren't forced to, they really wouldn't even bother stopping by. So we have about four hours of their undivided attention, and that's as that's saying a lot. So during those four hours, we hit the basics of here's how to maintain your immigration status. Here's what full-time enrollment looks like. Here's what on-campus work op options you have and the limitations on that. We spend a, a healthy amount of time on that. And then we spend a healthy amount of time on uh, our programming offerings uh, to really kind of push that to say, hey, here are the, all the international student organizations. Here are all the... Uh, local programming that's specifically targeting international students. So international coffee hour, international spouse group. I make everyone who's married show me their hands, like raise your hands if you're married. Like, okay, now your wife or husband needs to come to the spouse group. You know, I really kind of push these things uh, during that orientation. Uh, our biggest problem is, and the biggest uh, complaint against it is that they've just arrived. Some of them literally came in the room <laughs> with their uh, suitcases. So you can imagine the jet lag and the fact that they have not yet adjusted their ear to an American dialect or Southern American di dialect uh, means that a lot of it will go right over them. So we have lots of, of course, handouts and things like that. And we send out uh, weekly newsletters to just really kind of pump and engage them, uh, pump their interest about certain things. Luckily, most find Southern hospitality welcoming. You'll hear Jamila and Rajib's take on Southern culture. But it's worth noting that we emailed an international student from Rwanda about his experience. He was quick to point out one oddity in Southern culture that we just had to share. <laughs> Humans letting dogs lick their faces. <laughs> Even the professor with whom I just spoke about a few moments ago, like he had cautioned me, though, like, keep an open mind because you might face some prejudice. Like, not all people are the same. And so... He, Although he was an American, he tried to give me a real picture. But the people that I've met in Alabama so far have been very, very kind to me. Like, more than kind, I venture to say. To be honest, I didn't have any idea about that before coming to the United States. I think I found them very friendly. And I think food is a little better here. I have just seen uh, that it is easier to make friends somehow. UA now has staff and programming dedicated to international students through both the English Language Institute and the Capstone International Services. Uh, from an ELI point of view, we conduct uh, Friday seminars where we talk about different topics such as, you know, American football or Halloween, a lot of the Americana, or maybe Southern music, something that, you know, seminars that 
that help lend itself to, to, to learning about the culture. We also offer uh, local trips that they can go on, as well as weekend trips to, let's say, New Orleans, Atlanta, Panama City Beach, uh, Nashville. So we do square dancing every beginning session, and that's, I mean, that's as American pie as you can get. Now, Capstone International Services and ELI have a variety of partners on campus, from the Crossroads Community Center, the Honors College, the Writing Center, the Career Center, the list goes on and on. Additionally, there's a long history of Tuscaloosa community organizations, some that have been here since the 1960s. Among some of the churches and church organizations here in town, there are a lot of outreach efforts to international students and uh, we don't affiliate with any church in town or anything like that, but uh, we do make uh, students aware that they do exist and that you know there are these opportunities maybe for English practice or for uh, activities that take place. And we you know are very upfront about the fact these are church-affiliated uh, mm -hmm. programs. Most of them go very openly. I would say that a lot of our students are very much interested in learning about uh, the Christian faith from an American perspective to see what it is that, you know, how Americans kind of perceive their religious faith and, and, and everything. So I think that they get another cultural experience out of it that as a university we can never offer. Um, there's also other groups that are independent of that. Uh, Tuscaloosa's International Friends is one. They are mainly retirees that host students in uh, throughout the year. I've been pretty active with them. We work with them very closely. They have students from Stillman and from Shelton State as well as UA uh, who get paired with internet or with uh, families locally, but it gives them a chance to actually see the inside of an American home, which is uh, something that I think would uh, is, a, is an amazing opportunity because a lot of students come and they never see what a real American family looks like. And, you know, a real American family could be an immigrant family or it could be fifth generation or it could be, you know, a mixed family. Like, you never know. And within the international community, there are multiple ways to get involved. But one thing's for sure. The ISA is still around and it's a part of some international students' lives. Here's Jamila describing some of the activities. She currently serves as vice president of the ISA. We do everything that makes... Um um, somehow uh, um, like connects international students to domestic students. Uh, anything that makes students sit together, talk about their culture and tradition and uh, like break this barrier or bridge, uh, make, make a bridge and break the barrier between uh, uh, domestic students and like domestic culture and international culture and we are trying to like set different events uh, like we have international karaoke night next uh, semester and also we will have uh, international movie festival. However, even though students become assimilated, they still face limits to certain opportunities because of their international status. But the employers themselves who come to the career fairs, uh, surprisingly enough, some of them will put up signs that say, you know, we, we don't sponsor international students for uh, career placement because they already determined, it's like, I'm, I know that the students might independently have work authorization based on their student visa status that they could begin their internship with us or begin their career with us but they don't have the financial resources to move forward with a work visa sponsorship later on, so they don't even want to bother with it. So sometimes our experience has been that students 
have the door shut in their face before they ever really get very far, despite the resources and the support they're getting from us. You know, if I can get a few more companies to open their doors to even the possibility of, of hosting an, a student for an internship, I think that that's going to help out a great deal. Um, again, this is not just a UA problem. This is an everybody problem because mm-hmm. these same employers are going to all the different universities. So, yeah. Since I'm an international student, some of, my op- some of the opportunities are limited for me because of my visa status. Mm-hmm. Some, some things which American students are eligible for, I'm not. Like what? Like, uh, let's say, for instance, I really wanted to study in Germany and learn German. But that can be quite expensive for me. But if you learn a critical language and you're an American, it's literally free. The government is actually paying you stipend to study. And it's outrageous that students are not taking advantage of this, at least from my perspective. And uh, you've got REUs. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about REUs where uh, you go to a different university, you work for a professor, you get paid for that. Like, literally, like... I've been looking for internships. There are so many of them. I've been looking for summer jobs. or Not exactly jobs, but uh, research opportunities, internship opportunities, and things like that. And there are so many of them. But what frustrates me is that every time I decide on something, this looks really good. It's just available to U.S. citizens only, eligible for U.S. citizens only. Nonetheless, student groups and administrators continue to build bridges between domestic and international students. It's tough. It's tough to break that cultural barrier of um, and being able to just walk up to somebody and, and say hello, but it, it has to start with a hello. Uh, it, it has to start with something. I've heard the same thing said on both sides, at least with international and domestic students. Like International students have this assumption, well, they're not interested in talking to me, these, these American kids. Uh, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go over there and, and try to interact with them because they'll just laugh at me. And then vice versa because an American student sees a bunch of Chinese students, you know, kind of hanging together, or a bunch of Saudi students hanging together, or, or just a collection of international students uh, hanging together. Uh, they may feel a little intimidating to to walk over and, and say hello. So we do a lot of programming. Um, but most of our programming is more geared towards getting domestic and international students together in the same spot. Um, we're not uh, intentional. Uh, it's, so there's not a design of me walking through and like trying to pair people up. What we're hoping is we just create something that will attract people and that they'll just naturally congregate and get to know one another, and then somebody maybe makes a friend and, and walks out with uh, with a connection. So we, we don't do it on purpose. The whole purpose of it is give a space and let things happen naturally. I think it was also a conscious decision to go out and meet people because I was like, now you're here. There's no going back. Not that I wanted to, but I have to make the most of this opportunity, and that does not involve staying in a room. And yeah, and not, and also I like, I like talking to people, and once I'm at ease with them, I guess it doesn't take me that long. But I like interacting with people and talking to them. So I just went out and I made a decision to like get to know people and talk to them. And maybe having like informal uh, uh, like settings and places and like activities that they can start talking with. Sometimes they're just shy. Uh, they don't know how to like um, ex- uh, ask their questions. They probably have a lot in their head, but uh, it's a little hard to start because you don't want to like. Uh, be offensive or rude to someone by asking like a weird question so it's a little difficult to start and that is the reason that we thought this uh, international study break is really good because it sets some in it, it said it's an like an informal uh, meeting and I think of the same thing every time I think of an Alabamian student or you know uh, uh, an out-of-state student who comes here that 
they may not have the opportunity to go abroad. They may not be able to afford that, but they can still have that international experience and make connections, real connections, through the international students we have here. And so if we open the door uh, to the world for a domestic student who's here just through something like International Coffee Hour or whatever else, then we will have done something great. Rajib looks forward to continuing here, and Jamila has an open mind about her future. Uh, I think most probably I'll stay. It depends a lot on, I think it, it, it is not something that I can predict really, yeah. but because my fiance also lives here and he um, works uh, here, so that's most probably the, uh, the like something that I'm think about it right now yeah. but I don't know maybe something I think some people were so amazing uh, during this five years that I've been here that uh, I'm sure I will remember for a long long time and uh, those people are I think a good reason to feel somehow feel home here the, the places that I will remember the most i think duncan donut is one of them because it's quite close to my office as well and also for sure my office in bevel building as for the future of ua's community the staff in bb comer hope to expand the alumni network for international students honestly it's it's always been a challenge for mm-hmm. that and the best way that we found currently is of course through social media mm-hmm. so in in fact when I go on fairs, uh, I contact former students to, to help me. And it's yeah. such a great way to reconnect as well as help promote your, your, the university as a whole. But it, that's one of the areas that I, I see as, as a, a room for, for growth and development. Uh, I think that one of the challenges for alumni development um, is definitely that our international students are mobile. Mm -hmm. Um, So after they graduate, they may stay in the States and do some sort of internship for a while, and then they may move who knows where. Mm -hmm. Um, So keeping up with them, because I think often the alumni office tries to keep their first address Mm -hmm. out of college, may not stick with them very long. Mm -hmm. Um, So building those alumni networks becomes more difficult. also, I'm very interested, but also but would love to have more information on our U.S. citizens who are maybe living abroad mm-hmm. and how they can tap in and help us as well. Um, building alumni chapters, connecting with locals, um, and so forth. I'm hoping that we have some CEO uh, who has a roommate who's going to be some Alabamian CEO of some <laughs> steel company, and they get together, and like 20 years from now, we've got some great trade partnership built off of like, uh, a, a random roommate pairing. Sure. <laughs> I would love to see for homecoming weekend an international tent, you know, so that we welcome back our international alums, you know, who just happen to come back for the home game and everything. So. After crossing the stage and receiving their diploma, students head down different paths. Some go across the South, others across the country, and others travel across the globe. We hope this episode showed you that no matter what path you take to get here, no matter what path you take after graduation, and no matter when you graduated, UA alums share a common spot on the map of our lives. Community can transcend borders, and higher education institutions like UA act as magnets for culture, innovation, and research to thrive. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
This is an episode in a series of stories about the University of Alabama. If you like this, please share our series. You can go to pluckandgrippodcast.com to submit story ideas, view pictures, and check out other episodes. And we'd like to thank each of our speakers for their time and campus contributions. And a special thanks to our musicians this week. The intro you heard is Night Owl by Broke for Free. You've been listening to Pluck and Grit. (laughs) See you next time.